Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment and your host for Media Mavens Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Pirates. Hey, Joe. Hello. Chilling out in the blanket fort. How you doing? The <laughs> blanket fort. <laughs> this is what the best thing about COVID and Zooms. You never know what's going on in our environments around us. The blanket fort. Yes. We need to get you some photos. Get you some good stuff up there. It's my COVID hiding place. Right. It's the man cave. It's the new man cave (laughs) 2.0. It's literally a cave. I'm so excited. Like, I'm super excited. We have Ira Rubenstein with us, who is the chief digital officer and CMO for PBS and a very longstanding good friend from the entertainment industry. Ira, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you, even though it is a podcast. I love catching up with you guys. How are things going? So we know Joe's in the man cave. You're at PBS. You're in Washington, D.C. Yes, I am. You you moved out of L.A., so I know L.A. misses you, but I know you don't miss the traffic. So Honestly, I I love Arlington, Virginia, and uh, it's lovely. I would say the biggest thing I miss in uh, L.A. is probably in and out Oh, really? They don't have it announced in D.C. No. That's, oh. Those who know me know that's a, a big deal for me. Uh, I think we need to ship some burgers your way. Uh, go to Five Guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, so funny, because last time we ran into each other years ago, you were the chief digital officer at PBS. I know a few years ago, right after I saw you, and congrats on that. Belated congrats. You're now the CMO and CDO at PBS. And I, we've been in COVID. We are stuck on Zoom. We're stuck in TV. I know prior to the podcast, you guys have a game. You have PBS Kids. What's going on with you guys? Because you guys have expanded a lot over the past five or six years. And I want to know what's going on during COVID that kept you guys going. So there are several things going on uh, during COVID, obviously. I think, you know, the biggest couple of the biggest things. One is uh, remote learning and the other is just the acceleration of over-the-top streaming and video. And like everyone else and all the subscription services, everyone saw this huge jump in the number of people watching OTT and watching video. So we, of course, enjoyed that. But as as a system, our membership stations really rose to the challenge as kids were sent home and became, in many cases, the way that they were providing remote learning because not everyone has broadband. Los Angeles and PBS SoCal was a a big station that did a lot of this work. And working with their state governments throughout the country, really providing children with that educational content. Nice. And so, you you guys have have the news, all the news on PBS, the politics and all the news. And you guys have the kids channel. Have you seen a big surge either in the politics and news over the kids channel or vice versa with at-home learning? So a couple of things. So in news, I think like all the news channels, that traffic did go up substantially. The PBS NewsHour saw growth in both in linear television as well as digital. They've also experienced tremendous growth on YouTube and uh, the YouTube viewing. I think... um, you know, now with our viewing, 
on these uh, social platforms. We're doing about 255 million views on different social media platforms. A lot of that's uh, both news, but also it's kids. It's uh, shows like Frontline, Washington Week, Firing Line is another show. And those kind of represent, that represents an increase about 50% year over year on those social platforms. And then when, you know, talking about kids, the kids growth is really coming in the form of both games as well as video. And what you're seeing in the kids world is that they are really leading the way in away from linear broadcast to on demand. And that's uh, where their growth is. And as well as with the uh, games that we launched, as you know, sir, I used to do mobile games. And um, we launched a a kids games app separately from the video app. Gosh, it's probably now been three or four years. And that app is now almost equal in traffic as the video app. And just the our games are much different than I would say any other entertainment company because all of our games are curriculum based and tied to an educational concept and have research proven that they actually help children in advanced learning, whether it's reading or science or social emotional learning. And so they're not just button smashers. They actually have a a (laughs) concept and tied curriculum. Do you miss the mobile gaming space? Because I know when you're at Sony, I mean... (laughs) It was all about the mobile games. I mean, I think it's cool that if all these kids have to be on their video games, it's least educational. I mean, you know, look where esports. I mean, gaming just became a mobile game to the whole esports industry. I mean, do you miss that, or do you, are you more inspired because you know you're making a bigger difference in our future of these little kids who are smarter now than they were six years I ago? Mean, look, it was it was a lot of fun in the Java Brew world. It was challenging as you, you know, you had to do all that porting, but, you know, the concepts that I learned there really have helped me as I apply now as we get into connected TVs and video apps and connected TVs, because among the TV manufacturers, there's different chipsets, there's different interface. I mean, it's like you could have said the same thing about Java Brew phones. And so you're porting your app and you're trying to make it work on these connected TVs and everything, you know, you hear YouTube just talked about their connected TV numbers and their growth. That is the fastest growing platform. And we have a PBS app on both Samsung and we just launched the uh, kids app on Vizio with the, what we call the general audience app coming uh, later this summer, probably May, June-ish time slot. And we purposely have our separate content because there's content on our PBS general audience. It could be a frontline documentary about war. You don't want a three-year-old seeing that. Yeah. And you have the kids app, which is strictly built for them. The interface is built for them. You know, it's it's designed with pictures and not words. And, you know, it's really all geared towards how they navigate and what they want. And a parent can go on that and know there's going to be no ads. It's going to be safe. We're not going to be tracking their data and reselling it or anything like that. And uh, the child can watch whatever they want, or they can actually even pick up a live stream of a linear uh, kids channel. I love it. I feel like we as adults in the industry, can you know, we'll be in the same industry for a long time, at least from a PR standpoint. I wish I could just present in pictures. 
and versus words. It's like sometimes you can't just keep doing the same thing over and over where a picture is a thousand words. That'd be awesome on the startups. Forget the VCs and all the demographics and numbers. Let's just show you a photo. I feel like it's Sesame Street, maybe a better speed set. So funny. So we let's talk numbers. You ran off some numbers before we started the podcast that were so impressive because, like you said, nobody really thinks PBS is a digital play, but you really have done a lot in the digital world. What are your numbers of viewers, users? Yeah. From well, everything? it's actually twofold. People don't look at us as a large traditional PB a broadcaster. And when you talk about households, we're typically sixth or seventh. I mean, we're larger than Discovery. We're larger than History Channel. We're larger than you know CNN. We're larger than all, all these smaller cable. And in fact, I mean, most recently, All Creatures Great and Small, the night of the Super Bowl, we were the most watched show other than the Super Bowl. So we get eyeballs traditionally. And it's about, you know, each month, it's about 100 million people are tuning into their local station. But then... When you switch over to the apps, we're really large there too. We get on average about 32 million people a month watching our apps, about 51 million across maybe our our social content. And then in terms of streams, we're looking at about 400 million streams a month across our web and mobile and OTT and T apps. And that's as we were speaking earlier to COVID, that's about a 25% increase from uh, uh, the year before. So it's it's quite substantial in, in our traditional sense. And then you have our non-traditional sense. And I mean non-traditional, that's uh, PBS Digital Studios, which is at launched right before I got to PBS. And we've been able to grow it substantially. And what I like to position it as is imagine... So PBS is 50 years old. And when the early days of PBS, they were doing all sorts of experimental television. And so for digital studios on YouTube, the attempt is for that audience, for that platform, think of what a public media PBS show should be like. So whether it's Deep Focus or a show about art or science, um, Physics Girl, for example, that's what that is doing. And that has grown to about 22 monthly users, about 55 monthly views on YouTube. And again, that's uh, up about 16% over year over year. And we're typically in the top three for education creators on YouTube. So um, it's, again, I like the innovation of that, but it's, again, what I think is a big secret. People, we don't have the marketing budgets to shout from the highest treetops that this is what we're doing. One thing I, I really noticed, and I'm going to give PBS a, a shout out here, especially on the news side, that you on January 6th, PBS was the only, and I'm going to be the only national outlet that had somebody inside the Capitol on January 6th with Judy Woodruff talking to this reporter. And, I, and I'm sorry, I cannot remember her name. We said they were them. Yes. And I can tell you that I turned over from MSNBC and CNN to watch that because that was more riveting television that I could ever, ever, ever imagine something like this would be because you'd see the outside shots and doing that. But let's look at it as a, a marketing officer for this. How hard is it to go into an operation like PBS when you are literally in, in an area of Washington, D.C. that's that's broken down by you know political divisions, but you guys are like one of the most number one trusted news sources in America. Is that hard to market? <laughs> Is it hard to market? Gosh, you know, 
I think the hardest part of our marketing is really just a lack of budget. We don't have the billion plus that Netflix has or the hundreds of millions that a traditional network might have. And so we have to be really smart in how and when we do our marketing and taking advantage of our ability to target market. So uh, giving you an example, you know, we have uh, Ken Burns Hemingway coming up April 3rd. Yeah. I hope I didn't mess that up. And I know on my on-air and on my apps, I can, I can market Ken Burns Hemingway to that core audience. So with my limited dollars, what I have to do is target people who might want to watch a Ken Burns documentary and Hemingway. So go after the readers, the Hemingway fans, documentary fans, and not necessarily say, okay, you have to be a PBS watcher. And so by using those dollars to expand our audience, that's what we've been doing. We did this successfully on the Black Church. Uh, this is my story. This is our song. Dr. Skip Gates slay this film that did very well. It was his top streaming documentary that he's done. I still, the numbers are still coming in. I believe it will end up being his number one film ever for us. And then before that, All Creatures Great and Small, the masterpiece yeah. that was a huge success. And then going back a year before to uh, country music with Ken Burns and that, again, targeting country fans, no matter what your age or demographic was, but just honing in on country fans who might not know about that. And that was one of Ken's top, not his biggest uh, show yeah. as well. But that's what we have to do. We have to be very particular and very targeted and leverage our existing media to get those fans in and then trying to expand from there. And the how is, we have, I was going to say, the other thing we have that most don't, and I call it our secret sauce, and Sarah's a PR person, you'll love this. I feel we have the best field campaign group anywhere because we have stations in every market over 300 and they do they do events and they do you know they do still send out uh, i'll hold one up they do send out you know i'm sorry it's a visual they send out <laughs> their, their guides but these guides people do read and so yeah. you're getting in their hand you know information about a variety of different shows and that's the other thing about pbs we are a variety. So whether it's that news, mm -hmm. you mentioned that we're well known for most trusted source and Columbia School of Journalism just did another survey it came out, I think yesterday, where they reconfirmed we're the most trusted news source, or it's a Nova special on the Mars landing, or it's Dr. Gates, you know, giving a history of the black church. Well, it's you guys also have art. I mean, you're not just doing technology, politics, world events you have a whole section on digital art and the largest was it was it the van gogh was the largest auction pieces ever on the block i mean you are covering everything in the digital world right now and because you have stations in every major city your marketing reach is kind of like having extended marketing teams in every market which is makes more sense because a lot of people I, mean, I don't think cnn cnn has their offices they have the reporters but you guys physically have boots on the ground in every every area. I don't even know what LA's PBS local station is. Uh, so that's PBS SoCal and KCET is also now back in the PBS family. And that's okay. the same. The so same you, you do have but, a lot of marketing reach, so which is great. So I think that off... It doesn't matter, but every station's independent. Yeah. So it's a matter of getting them the tools and pulling them into the plan 
and then empowering them. And look, there are stations like PBS SoCal that have a lot of people. And then there, there are stations like uh, Cooksville, Tennessee, that has, you know, Becky has less than 10 people. And so she's what is, got, what is Arizona, Joe? What's AZ? AUAT Tucson? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and then let me with that, with those boots on the ground there, how hard is it to keep them on brand? Well, we just did a major brand refresh working with Lippincott and we rolled that out over the last year and it's been quite successful. When we went into it, our brand hadn't really been touched in over 10 years. And what, what we were saying was we had a flip phone brand in an iPhone world. Come from mobile. I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that was, that, was, that was good. That was a good but connection. That was true. It wasn't translating to all these platforms that we had been building and putting the stations on. And so through working at Flippincott and building out an architecture, we built out a flexible system. So it's now Arizona PBS. Oh, okay. Uh, they changed their name. KLRU in Austin is now Austin PBS. And so you're getting stations now uh, either being a city or a regional name with the word PBS. Some are still using their call sign, but it was important that they bring in PBS to their name because um, we're not always able to bring the local station branding to every platform. Right. And we want to make sure that that local station gets the credit for the content, regardless of the platform and people tie it together that, you know, PBS SoCal, oh, and this PBS, that's where I, I understand. And my support to my local station helps not only my community, but all this great content. And that local support is, is important. The average station raises about half of their budget through individual donations. It is, it's critical. And when is you that, look at- that way, I'm sorry, Ari, is that the donation page on your um, website? I was going to ask you this next, because I know you, you don't have the broadcast, like the uh, CBS's, CNET's, ABC's, is public broadcast. So you guys, I mean, you don't have the big pocket on the fund, and I get that. But there's a place you could donate to your favorite station or... Yeah, so the way it works is that we're a membership organization. So all donations go through individual stations. So when you come to pbs.org, we will localize you to your local station. And in the city of LA, there's a couple. So you're going to have to choose. And then the donation button on that page, as well as the donation button across our app, all goes to that local station where you become a member. Does that but, fund the stations? Because I know you're independent, so you don't. So it's kind of like a nonprofit, so to speak, because you got to, you only spend what you bring in. It's not mm-hmm. like you have, and your shows, some of them I don't think, like, well, the kid ones don't have advertising and stuff, but is this how you kind of keep each individual market running? People locally must donate. If they want education for their kids, they want trusted news sources that they not have ownership in, but that they want to assure is safe. That's exactly right. So again, we're a membership organization and we receive dues from our member stations and that equals about half our budget at PBS National where we spend that money on shared programming and digital services. But at the individual station level, that donation is critical and it gets even trickier because not every station is the same. So we've mentioned a few. PBS SoCal is, is an independent nonprofit. KPBS in San Diego 
is actually owned by San Diego State. You mentioned Arizona. If I'm not yeah. mistaken, that's actually run by the U of A. University of Arizona. And then the KAET, which is the Phoenix branch, yes, is run by Arizona State. State. That's right, Arizona State. And then you get into state-owned. Georgia Public Broadcasting is actually owned by the state of Georgia. And you have some other state-owned. So we have these different mismatch funding sources coming in, and they're funded, some are funded by their states, uh, especially the state-owned ones. Some get money from their states. And it's just, it's all kind of a little bit different. But that's the beauty of PBS is that, you know, we are in every community and we mean something. And when I look towards the digital future, no other media brand has that same value proposition. I'm still a member of Minnesota uh, TPT, where I grew up. Mm -hmm. I'm a member of my station. They have local shows I'm interested in. I get them. And you have this bond to that local station that you grew up with. And no one else... You don't feel that same way about ABC or CBS. I'm sorry. You just don't. <laughs> Is that what drew, drew you to go from the private sector into something what it's considered the public sector of PBS? Because you came in from Sony and some very, very lucrative, I would imagine, jobs in L.A. to go to Alexandria, Virginia or Arlington, Virginia to PBS. I think you gotta be careful how we answer this one, Ara, because we know all the Sony guys and a lot of the guys that we know that are big in studios are on our podcast. Yeah. And so, so I'm so, not going to take sides on the whole entertainment bullshit to go into the <laughs> easy side of PBS. I'm going to let you roll on that one. And I support it. So look, seven years ago, when I was coming here, I, I saw the challenges ahead that were coming for TV. And gosh, I, I know I hate, I don't want to sound like ego. I've always been that person that kind of sees what's coming. And so you go all the way back to my career early on when I was the first to build movie websites, the first to sell tickets online, stream trailers online, the first, and then I started, you know, the, one of the first movie download services with Movie Link. And, you know, then moving on, you know, the Marvel and building out digital comics before anyone else. And, you know, I've always kind of, been that's what I do. And getting to PBS and just seeing what was coming for TV and seeing this national brand, this uh, this treasure. And I met Paula Kerger, who's the CEO, and she's been the CEO for, I think, over 13 years now, the best CEO I've ever worked for. And, you know, she said to me, she said, I, I can't pay you what you're worth but I can make it the best place you ever work. And, you know, you get to a point in your career and that starts to matter. And I saw the challenges ahead of them. And again, I, I hate I hate saying this, but it's true. I'm an Eagle Scout. So I feel like I have to, you know, give back. But I'm also, I'm thinking in my head, Sarah, I'm thinking of all the people we know. And I go, mm. gosh, if I don't do this. Who do I know that I trust to go and do this for the country, well, for I think all these communities. And I couldn't think of anyone in media, in digital media, who would move to Arlington and do this and make sure that this national treasure survives the digital transformation. And well, so I felt yeah. like I had to do it. It was my duty to do it. It was my turn to give back. I had just come out of you know working at Fox and doing a, yeah, another studio thing. 
And I was like, you know what? Let's let's give it a shot here and let's let's do this. And you know, it's it's been great. Yeah, I remember when you left LA entertainment space. I think the problem is when you're in LA or when you're in the studio, you get you're in the studio world, you get stuck in to the club. You know, it's like the mafia, you never leave the family. You go from one studio to the next studio, be in this inertia that you can never really have an escape from. You're just you're just sucked into it. And it's not a good or a bad thing. I mean Love, love, with all mad respect to Daniel Tibbetts, you know, from HBO Rome. You know, he's been our client a few times, El Ray. I mean, there are some solid people. But if you look at the studio life, nobody wants to leave the expense accounts because if you screw up, you're going to fly, get your golden ticket out and hop to another studio. No matter how much you screw up there, good, bad, or indifferent, because you're just an asshole, you're going to always be in the studio circle. So I think getting out of that inertia, you had an opportunity. And I think you were kind of burnt out on the bullshit of Hollywood. To go. I think, no, you I have think a family, so you wanted to be in a place where you wanted to be raising your kids to be happier. When we spoke, when you made that move, it was a good move for you, but you kind of made an ethical move. You didn't make a money grab move, which no. is really what most of our people do. But no, I meant that in all due respect, Ira, because you had you knew where your talent was and you wanted to see something grow regardless. Where it's just a different Look, world it, in the it, studio. You know, it's it's been great. I'm very proud of the work we've done, but you're right. It's not about the money. It's like, you know, I don't drive a Lexus anymore. I have a nice Chevy and it's great. It works fine. And you know, I'm not I'm very fortunate and very lucky and you know, at a certain point, you look at your career and you go, okay, it's enough to ver- live very comfortably and it's all good. And, and, but more important, honestly, for me, more important is really just making sure that this national treasure transforms. And we've done a lot of things. We have expanded our distribution tremendously. We're up on YouTube TV. We just about six months ago finally launched live linear streaming on our apps. And that took a long time because of how the rights work at PBS. It's a little bit different. We were on no cable free VOD platforms. And now we're on Comcast, Charter, Fios. I'm probably forgetting a couple of other ones. Just expanding it, but doing it in a way where there's local station branding, because it'd be easy just to go up as PBS, but that doesn't help our local stations. And the local stations is, again, how the business model works. So on all these platforms, that's the local station bumper in front of it on FBOD, YouTube TV, uh, working with Kelly Merriman and her team, a friend from Sony. But, you know, God bless them. And also Susan Wojewski, they stepped up because I came to them. I go, hey, we want to be there. Oh, by the way, you need to carry three stations here in Arlington. WHUT, Howard University. MPT and WIDA. And, you know, their heads explode. It's like their interface isn't built for three of the same or slightly different with different time. But, you know, they stepped up because it was important. And, um, you know, I really appreciate that. But that's a lot of people, you know, right? And I'm happy I can leverage the people I know to help the public media. Because every time I reach out to anyone from my past and I talk about, okay, I need the public media discount for what we're trying to do. And they need the IRA discount and they step up and I'm really grateful for that. And uh, we're helping, you know, expand the distribution in a world that's splintering. 
Now, at the end of the day, I mean, we're all, regardless of the Hollywood bullshit, we're all in it together. I mean, it's family. So many people we know. But let me have, an, I have two, okay, actually, a question. Have you guys talked to Fremantle? You know, like now dropping names on the podcast. Remember Mark Deachin? He was over at Sony, the side and the Sony Pictures digital side. He's now GM of Buzzed or Buzzer at Fremantle. And they're playing all the originals. He may be, I may need to connect you with him off podcast. Instead of going offline, just off podcast. Um, but, but did, did we ask you a question, Ara? Given, okay, this, I'm going to kind of rewind the clock here. You, you know, you and Joe were both saying, you know, the most trusted news source, the most trusted news source. Everybody has their trusted news sources. Then it became, what the hell? Fox News. It's all, you know, it's all skewed. It's all this. It's all that. Politics, Black Lives Matter, you know, COVID, the elections. Because you have every station running their own battles on the ground versus this an overarching Fox or CNN. It, and this is no disrespect. It's just a question. Is there a question of authenticity and ethics of each station with their own political agendas based on the bashing of COVID, open, close, and all this stuff and support? Or is it really that like honest to God truth and news and facts on every station that's not an I issue? Think- I got to tell you, I think every station in our system takes editorial journalism standards seriously. We have an editorial standards. We have a ombudsman person that you can write to if you feel like we're not being fair and truthful and holding high journalistic standards and that, and they have to answer and they do answer and they're completely, completely separate. But, you know, we say it wasn't we, uh, it was Gwen Eiffel would say, we bring the light and not the heat to a news story. And if you look at news hour, it's an hour long on purpose because they will go in depth and they will explain what is happening. And there isn't an opinion piece. And that's what I think you're seeing in other news is these opinion journalists that are kind of shouting at each other. And at, at the news hour, uh, with extraordinarily quality journalists as well. The same goes for Washington Week, firing line and frontline. It is always going to be this, okay, what is going on? I'm going to explain it to the public in an unbiased way. And, you know, a show like Firing Line of Margaret Hoover, which of course comes from Buckley, was the founder, you might go, okay, this is coming from a conservative viewpoint, but I watch I watch her show all the time and she asks tough questions and it's not an opinion. She's being fair and journalistic, but she's coming at it from a, a I would say a more conservative side approach. But see, that's, that's, see, that's the problem. If you're given an opinion piece, they are there. And I'm going to say this from the PR standpoint, because it's all about spinning everything. They are giving an opinion piece and op-ed based on their personal opinion. And we all know you're swayed and influenced by what you see in here on a daily basis. So I think there's a lot of contention between the social divide, the political divide, and other problems, because people are getting so heated. Where would you get your news? Oh, well, Fox News, there we are, CNN. I think opinion pieces are there to sway others to come over the line and to accept your opinion as theirs, where when you're based journalism on facts, and pure facts and no opinion, good, better, and different. It gives the power back to the people to make solid decisions 
based on science and math and facts, not on opinions. I think that is a crux of where journalism has faltered in the past, like two and a half, three years that I've seen. Yeah. I, I, I can't speak for the others. I can only speak for, you know, our stations. And even this, I don't feel totally qualified. I feel like if you really want to dive deep in this, talk to Sarah Just, the editor, you know, senior producer of NewsHour or Rainey Aronson, you know, executive producer of Frontline and both extraordinary women in leaders in journalism with multiple, multiple Emmy wins and prizes. I mean, all the... Uh, all the awards, because I'm—I'll I'm, be honest. I'm not 100% comfortable speaking to all the work that they do because it's yeah. really good work. Yeah, and then and it wasn't a—you know—it wasn't a firing squad. It's just—it was. I think it was just more of an opinion, my opinion op-ed being in PR this whole time. We enjoy wide support from across both sides of the aisle. I know that that isn't the popular narrative, but we have been getting funding through Congress steadily for the last 50 years, no matter who's in charge. And I think it is because when you get out of the rhetoric, you know, the congressmen and women and senators understand that this, what it means in their community, what their local station is doing on the ground in their community. Often that local station might be the only way they get to reach out to their community in a media standpoint. And have conversations. So I think, you know, the fact that local stations are still responsible for their own local programming and what makes sense in their community is important. And so the local shows that they produce matter. And I, I really, you read help. my mind. And, and I would like to ask you, do you think that with a new administration that PBS may be seeing more funding coming their way through Congress? I mean, because a lot of these guys that are coming in are younger. They grew up with Big Bird and Ernie and Oscar the Grouch, so they know the stuff. They Gosh. know the brand. I, I mean, I could say I would hope so. I do know in this latest COVID relief bill, there was some money set aside for the Corporation of Public Broadcasting to help with COVID-related charges for radio and TV. So to understand how funding works, funding gets sent to the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, and they are a quasi-government agency, they have a board that is appointed, you know, appointed members, usually the president appoints those members. And they in turn provide funding out to public radio and public TV stations, not just PBS and NPR, and they have guidelines and that kind of funding. And that was set up originally to provide that buffer between Congress funding and and uh, funding of public media. So I do know there is some money coming in for COVID, which I know the stations could all use because they have tremendous costs of trying to work remotely and safely and running, you know, towers and, you know, broadcast centers and things like that. And hopefully, you know, we can get more funding. That'd be great. But I, you know, I leave that to uh, others because it really is the stations who speak with their representatives who make and make their case. It's not us lobbying as a, as an organization, that's not what we do. Okay. I think we should change to take like all the hashtags for viral marketing. So have go team hashtag go Sesame Street hashtag. Go, and then we could just filter all of the programs out there. Go Sesame Street, please donate. <laughs> please <laughs> don't send Big Bird home. 
it's honest, you know, donation is because it's distributed, it's the hardest thing. But we have done some things since I've been there that I'm really proud of in this in this vein. So we launched PBS Passport, which is if you're a member of your local station, you get access to a library of content. So if you're a member, you can get all of Ken Burns films, all of them. If you're a member, you can get Downton Abbey all the seasons. And so you're supporting your station and you get this membership benefit. It's not, we're not selling a subscription. It is a membership, a true membership benefit. I like to think of it, think of it instead of getting a tote bag or a DVD, you have a video library. The other thing we've launched in the last six months is what I call one-click donation. And so the vision was on these OTT platforms, I know that they have your wallet, your credit card, right? Yeah. And you, you can sign up and buy by just clicking. And I thought, wouldn't it be great that you could donate directly to your station as you're watching a show and say, yes, I want to donate. I want to send $5. I want to send $10. Click your remote and do it. So on the Amazon Fire platform, again, I, I don't want to drop names, but again, it's, it's those partners who understand the importance, who are helpful. We're up on Amazon Fire and you can donate. And that is killing it. We have a 12% conversion rate on that platform from the donate page. That's the one we can speak into the remote control, right? Yeah. So Smart TV. You could just, uh, Siri, please donate five bucks to Big Bird or something. Oh, you can, uh, we don't have the voice, but it is, uh, uh, not yet, but you is on the fire. If you're watching our app on that and it goes directly to the station, it doesn't come through PBS. It's all localized and, and things like that. So. My vision is to hopefully get that to other platforms, get it to Roku, get it to YouTube, get it to all these places. And that, I believe, could become the future of Pledge and not have the Pledge show, but actually be asking and and getting that support as people are watching. You just watched a great NewsHour special. Send $5 support, you know, journalism. And people will. And we're seeing that. So I'm greatly encouraged by where we've gotten as a system into digital fundraising. And uh, it's important we do even more. But I, I, I believe it will be more productive and more efficient for the system than uh, pledge. Nice. Pledge breaks that we get. We are running out of time. I'm so excited you came on today. Is there anything before we, you know, end our podcast with you, Ira, anything coming up this year that we could look forward to from you guys? Anything you could talk about that's launching on the PBS site? I mean, you have the kids Uh, games and great stuff, but. So, uh, well, of course, uh, uh, I mentioned Hemingway, which is April 5th. And And where can people find that? Where I mean, send them to the website, right? Yeah, on on our website, uh, pbs.org. But on April 5th, you'll be able to stream on the PBS video app, which is on every platform. And then, gosh, there's so many good shows. It's like it's like picking your favorite child, right? Doc um, Martin. Uh, Doc Martin shows. You have, there's a great frontline piece coming on with ProPublica about the, December, the January 6th event. They've been following these uh, groups the Proud Boys, et cetera, since Charlottesville. And I've seen just brief part of it. It looks extraordinarily powerful as frontline can only frontline do where we'll get in and you know understand what what is going on with these these groups and why they are protesting and storming the Capitol. 
And then I'm also, just because it's in the middle of my head right now, working on Ali, Ken Burns and Sarah Burns film in the fall, four nights on Muhammad Ali. And as only, uh, you know, Ken and Sarah can tell that story and, you know, what an improbable icon he was. And uh, that's what I love about Ken's films is, you know, he tells history through stories. Yeah. And if you hear, ever hear Ken talk about it, it's really what makes all of his uh, films just so compelling and, and you learn a lot. I mean, that's, the, you know, the funny thing about PBS, I, I'm always learning something. And I'll give you one more example. It's another film you should watch. It's called Reconstruction by Dr. Skip Gates. And so at TCA, as you know, TCA Television Critics Association, we get all the critics in the room. Dr. Gates comes, he always has a dinner and I go. And so for Reconstruction, it was all these Harvard and Yale professors and they were all talking about Reconstruction, dropping dates and everything. And I felt like I was flashing back to college, not having read the material and not being prepared to engage this, this discussion. Because honestly, I don't know about you, I didn't learn about Reconstruction in my college or high school American history classes. I had no idea. And it's just, when you look at what's going on in America today, it goes all the way back to Reconstruction. And I'm just so proud of the work we, we have. And you know, it goes back to your question about you know, leaving Hollywood. I'm proud of 99.9% .9 of the shows that air on PBS and our local stations. And I'm happy to market every single one where in Hollywood, you know, maybe it's 10%. <laughs> But there was a margin of error there. Aaron, you and I both <laughs> that that point one percent. I got to figure out what that point one percent is. Is it Dora? No, I'm not gonna. You know, I mean, I'm not. I'm not the biggest uh, travel show person personally. But you know, I, you know, I just I've been watching on Passport. We have this great show called Seaside Hotel, which is a Danish show number one show in, 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 in Denmark. And so they got the, the rights for it for Passport for stations. And it's fun. It's a fun little show. I'll probably watch more tonight. Real, but you go quick. back to marketing, that's yeah. the challenge, right? Yeah. So every night I'm competing against this library of content. And we got to get our material up so it rises to the top so that people will want to watch it in their whole list. We all have our lists. Real quick, I know that we're running out of time here, Ira. I got one question. The great program that, that you guys get from Britain, from France, from Norway, do you guys donate or help fund some of those productions? So um, each one's a little different. In some cases, it might be a straight licensing. In some cases, it might be a joint production where we're funding a portion of the cost in exchange for domestic rights, which would include broadcast, digital streaming, and then, of course, uh, SVOD, I should mention, we also have, through PBS Distribution, some uh, SVOD channels on Amazon. So you have the Masterpiece channel, the Kids channel, and the Docs channel. And those provide revenue back to our producers. Because our producers, like a Ken, like a Dr. Gates, we're not funding 100% of the costs. So in the old days, they would sell DVDs to deficit and support that. They might have a sponsor like uh, Bank of America in the case of Ken Burns. 
And in the modern days, with DVD sales going away, we have to supply them of revenue from this SVOD service. And that goes to, goes to the producers as well as PBS, but it's really mostly to the producers. And uh, it's definitely very challenging. It used to be, you know, Netflix or Amazon would license our shows and we would generate revenue that way. And then they went, you know, they want to only do their own. It is so good having you on the show, Ira. So for everybody who wants to, you know, whether live streaming, the kids, the games, everything, news, pbs.org, and then they can find their local station. I don't want you to click in and ask you by GPS, a location-based built-in, where's your zip code? Here's your station. And donate. And donate. Donate, donate, donate. It's all about the donation. (laughs) Oh, my God. It was so good having you on, Ira. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've always been one of your biggest fans. You know that. So it's going to be great to see what else comes out of the digital side with PBS. But until then, this is Sarah Miller. Media Mavis podcast, Joe. Great afternoon with you again, as always. Oh, I learned so much. I think we should have podcasts with Ira as a learning tool for PBS. <laughs> Media meet Mavis education podcast. <laughs> That's right on brand. Weekly, monthly drop-ins of 15-minute educational series. Ira, we definitely are going to have you back on the show again to talk more about this. But until then, thank you for all your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.